This is Chip in Durham, Erica in Edmonton, and Shannon in Durham. And you're listening to the Audio Guide to Babylon 5, Episode 85, Endgame. Attention, please. Attention, please. We have an appropriate title. Repeat, we have an appropriate title. (laughs) Ding, 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 (laughs) ding. I love it. So, wow. Um, So, Earth Civil War, kind of over. That was that was yep. the big thing. <laughs> it was intense. Yeah, there was an awful, awful lot that happened in here. Now we have talked uh, at length uh, this season about the fact that season four could have been the last season of Babylon Five, and that certain aspects of the story were accelerated in season four to give a proper sense of closure to people, which is very good because. If it had ended after season three, they wouldn't have even tried, and Sheridan would have fallen at Zahadum, and everybody would have been like, what? <laughs> and we didn't get that this year. But things did seem to move pretty fast from time to time. Um, before we even get to the episode reset and just, and, and just go through the synopses and all this other stuff, were either of you taken aback by how much happened in this 43 minutes worth of television. Um, not taken aback, impressed. Um, looking at the Lurker's Guide, JMS takes great care to point out there's a difference between rushed and fast. Uh, he had mm-hmm. always planned for last episode and this episode to have this much going. This is the climax of this story arc. This is, you know, everything happening and, you know, bullets flying and everybody's fighting for their lives. It's supposed to be, you know, a plan. We love it when a plan comes together and <laughs> and it happens. So there are places earlier in the season where we can point and say, you know, yeah, something's rushed or something's missing. I don't think that's a problem with this particular episode. I think it's just holy cow, how she didn't amazing JMS's writing was <laughs> to get everything in that he did, and it, it feels fast. It feels exciting. I don't personally. I don't see it as rushed. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. I felt like it was, it was it was intense, and it was. It, it didn't feel like the plot, even not knowing that this was the way that JMS intended it to be, I would have I would have guessed that or I would have felt it because it seemed like the events that happened as we were being told made perfect sense for them all to happen as they did. And while I suppose if you had more time to play with, um, or, or rather, if you had more time that you were required to fill, there are places that you could pad this action out. But I think that if you did that, it would feel like it was padded out as opposed to what we got, yeah. which was a really nice flow in the action and you know, cutting back and forth between things that we are interested in and care about and not a lot of fluff, which I appreciate when you're talking about as Shannon said, a climax. This is the climax of this this storyline. So you don't want a lot of of extra fluff and and you know long drawn out character moments. This was this was the right kind of character moments. They happened fast. They happened in short bursts. And and I just I thought like seated that within it, the the action. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. So I, I really thought that the the flow and sort of the the peaks and shallow valleys that we got in terms of the pacing were were just right for 
uh, for an episode of, of this, you know, intensity and this caliber and, and this place in the season. Babylon 5 excels at the buildup. And especially with the two big plot threads so far, the Shadow War and the Earth Civil War, you know, tension kept ratcheting up, things kept happening, complications kept ensuing, and you get to the point where how in the heck are they going to resolve this thing? And the Shadow War ended with get the hell out of our galaxy. I would like you all to think a little bit about how the Earth Civil War thread resolves and whether it resolved to your satisfaction in sort of the same way or did it just build so much that, uh, you know, any kind of resolution might have been might have been a letdown. Please consider that as we go through the what you need to know and the episode summaries. Here's your episode reset. If you are just dipping into the podcast now, um, one has to assume that if you're listening to this, you've seen a lot of Babylon 5 before. But if you're just checking in because you really love Endgame, let us remind you what came before. Ever since Earth President Clark lost his allies during the Shadow War and escalated his campaign against breakaway factions of Earth to target civilians, Babylon 5's Captain John Sheridan has been planning to depose Clark. He began with recapturing colonies and was briefly interrupted when he was captured and tortured. It's all been leading up to this. The effort to liberate Mars and Earth begins now. But Sheridan has to go on without his most loyal ally, Commander Susan Ivanova, who was critically wounded in the last battle against Earth Force and doesn't have much longer to live. In this episode, we love it when a plan comes together. Sheridan's team and the Mars Resistance smuggle the cryogenically frozen telepaths from the Shadow War onto most of the Earth destroyers in Mars orbit, crippling the majority of the fleet and giving Sheridan a clear path home to Earth. He and his fleet, Mimbari, Brakiri, Vri, all of them, arrive to find Earth only protected by its defense grid. Sheridan delivers an ultimatum. It's time for everyone who was afraid of President Clark to rise up. Clark doesn't give the Resistance the satisfaction of capture and trial. He kills himself, but not before turning the defense grid on Earth itself. Sheridan and a fleet full of aliens must in turn rescue Earth, and the Earth Force general who stood against Sheridan is the one who destroys the last satellite rather than Sheridan having to sacrifice himself to take it out. But speaking of sacrifices, a slip of Lanier's tongue encourages Marcus to look into extreme measures to save Ivanova's life. He finds Dr. Franklin's notes about the alien healing machine introduced way back in the first season the one that sacrifices the user's life energy for the patient's. And before the credits roll, we see that he is using it on her. Deep sigh. And that is Endgame. Yeah, it is. (laughs) (laughs) Before we dip into it, I just just want to give some props to Stephen, my Stephen. Um, at the end there, you, you mentioned the, the machine from way back in season one. Mm-hmm. He remembered it Yay! immediately. Yep. <laughs> so proud, you guys. I'm so proud. <laughs> and that was an aspect of Babylon 5 history, that they did not lampshade in any way. Mm-mm. Right. You had to remember it. It hasn't been seen since uh, they worked on Garibaldi at the beginning of season two. And then it's been in a closet somewhere that apparently Marcus uh, convinced somebody to help him find it. Um, 
judging by the security officers on the deck. You have an interesting definition of convince. Yeah. Well, it's easier to convince somebody to do something. What is it? uh, With a kind word and a two by four? Then with just a kind word. Just a kind word? Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. (laughs) Ah, The wit and wisdom of Marcus, which we are unlikely to hear ever again. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Let's get, we'll, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's uh, talk a little bit about the basic logistics of this episode first. Directed by producer John Copeland, of all people. Mm-hmm. John Impressive. Copeland. John Copeland was the, I guess, if, if you're thinking old school, no, old school, like 2005 Doctor Who and stuff, you know, he would have been the Phil Collinson um, figure <laughs> on the uh, production team. He was the guy who made the logistics happen while JMS wrote the story and Doug Netter uh, cut the checks. I, I, I'm kind of surprised. I'm kind of surprised that a first-time director would take on an episode of such magnitude. And, and the first-time epi- director of this show, I mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that seems odd. I mean, I I haven't been diligently checking the Lurker's Guide. Is there anything in there about was somebody else supposed to direct this and he stepped in at the last minute? Or was this sort of like, I have been producing this show all along. I feel really strongly about it. I know these characters. I know the way the show is supposed to work. This is, please give me a shot. I I think I can do this. I mean, because if that was it, there's nothing on the Lurker's Guide. Yeah. Mm Yeah, now I, I, considering that this is the first time he's directed, color me impressed because there is nothing mm-hmm. I can point to that threw me out of the story or made me think, you know, I wanted to see more of X or less of Y. Um, mm-hmm. I do remember noticing the handheld tracing Marcus's path through MedLab mm-hmm. and thinking, hey, that's a handheld. I recognize that technique. That's about the only <laughs> thing I can point to <laughs> as far as the directing to say I that didn't something... Even- I didn't Wait. even notice that, Shannon. You're 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 <laughs> becoming one of us. One of us. Uh, um, I I thought that some of the like cuts between characters in conversation was a little pedestrian. Uh, angle A character talks. Angle B character talks. Mm-hmm. Not a lot of crosstalk between the angles. That sort of thing. But uh, you know, this was as much a technical episode and a uh, CGI fest as anything mm-hmm. else. So um, there's. So much of this episode required a sure hand in the editing and a strong script and good work from Netter Digital. So uh, maybe this was a good one to uh, have where it's almost director proof. Then there's mm-hmm. so much more that perhaps having the producer in the director's chair uh, to keep everything lined up made a lot of sense. That could be. So so good job, John Copeland. Um who, uh, spoiler alert, will come along to direct future episodes of Babylon 5. Uh, We get a turn from J. Patrick McCormick as General Q, I mean General Lefcourt. He's got a (laughs) real uh, John DeLancey vibe about him sometimes. I I, I get the feeling. Oh, really? I just thought I recognized him from somewhere, but I never bothered to look it up and find out. So maybe Um, I'm just remembering him from this. (laughs) Sometimes that happens. Well, he needed to... You need a... You need a counterpart, a mirror image type of person for Sheridan in this episode, I think. And I think he I think he mostly delivers. There's a bit of a cliche about I taught him everything he knows in the academy. <laughs> yeah, there, there's a bit of that. But, you know, it makes sense within the story to find somebody like that, that um, that they think really, really knows and understands Sheridan mm-hmm. um, in order to predict his moves. 
And I also thought that it was a nice, it, it was shades of gray again, that, that thing that we keep getting in Babylon 5. He was not a two-dimensional mustache twirling villain. This was and a we've person had that. Was, we've had yeah, that. Yeah, we, we, we had a taste of that in yeah, the bar we sure space. Did. <laughs> <laughs> um, so he's, he's somebody that, that we feel for who seems like a three-dimensional person who actually cares about Sheridan and just happens to be on the other side. And for, for reasons that seem like they make perfect sense to him. Um, yeah, so I, I appreciated it. Mm-hmm. And one other uh, cameo of note, um, not sure it's strictly speaking a cameo, but if you are a British sci-fi dweeb like us and are familiar with Terry Nation's survivors, Carolyn Seymour uh, from that show played the uh, senator who uh, found ex-President Clark. Oh, cool. So noted. So that's that's the trivia portion of the episode. Let's get into uh, <laughs> let's get into this. Uh, so uh, going back to my question before I went through the synopses, um, satisfying finale to the Earth Civil War. I felt I like it so. was. Yeah, I mean, it, it. I don't have a lot of experience following wars super closely or anything, but it made sense to me that that a lot would happen toward the end and they have been seeding the fact that not everybody on earth is happy with this and you've got senators who are on the other side and people who are just scared to act. So the fact that when they finally have support coming in from outside that it wouldn't take an awful lot to sort of touch off that overt rebellion and and get people moving and certainly we haven't seen it from the inside. Actually, that would be a really interesting um extra like mini series to either have done or to do now uh, to show sort of like the resistance that's on earth and the people that are fighting against president clark from from inside earth we just sort of have an idea that that's happening but we never get anything specific about it so i i, I like the fact that we just sort of knew that they existed enough so that when they appear here and you have that senator you know marching through it doesn't completely come out of nowhere because because this is this is a logical and b been alluded to Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. This is sort of one of those instances where, um, yes, I might have liked to have seen a little bit more, like, you know, seen, you know, people, um, you know, getting up and going and finding each other and, and you know, gathering, you know, it would have been kind of cool to see that, what led, what, how that group got together to march down that hall. But, you know, that does feel with, without the room earlier in the season, it, it's, it's not been a focus of the story. The story has been focused on Babylon 5, on the Alliance, their point of view. Um, as Erica said, there's been enough mentions and uh, bits here and there to hint at what's been going on. But if we weren't following it all along, that has the potential to feel like the padding that we were very grateful that this story did not have. Yeah. I mean, the notion of a giant fleet coming to Earth to liberate all of Earth, for it to wind up in one episode, there are a couple of options. Either it's just a straight-up war story and we have uh, 45 minutes of air-to-air and and ground-to-ground fighting and things like that, and that's just too much for a single episode. Or you elegantly sidestep it because that's not the way that you solve the problem. And it is almost literally an elegant sidestep because the fleet's massing at Mars. You've got to hit Mars before you hit Earth. Otherwise, you're fighting a battle on two fronts. And they take care of the Mars problem quickly and surprisingly. 
by that time that's solved, you're in Earth orbit, and honestly, the people in Earth Dome take it from there. It's there. It's 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 what they do that ends the war. Following Sheridan's arrival there. Mm-hmm. Yep. Which brings me to Chekhov's telepaths. <laughs> <laughs> He's called Bester in this show. <laughs> um, but yes, it is. that is a very, very canny, solid use of a plot point. Um, these telepops have been around for <laughs> season. So, you know, they've been there. They were gone for a while. And then when... JMS needed to. He starts including references. He has Bester come back and discover their existence. He then has the mentions in the background. Franklin working on something. Franklin working on something. And uh, finally, whether the audience members have pieced together what is likely going to happen, it doesn't matter because JMS reveals that exposition dump but done beautifully because we have franklin finally telling the rest of the team that this is what's going down and having somebody protest vehemently that you know that's not right and franklin takes the opportunity to say okay what's worse lose 30 people that we may not be able to help anyway or lose 30,000 people many of whom are innocent soldiers following orders so um i love it (laughs) throughout this season in spoiler space on the podcast we have been saying look what he did there look what he did there with the telepaths look what he did there with the telepaths you know we've known obviously what's coming in in endgame we've known how he was going to use them and this is the most perfect example in season four of the hand of the showrunner with personal control over every single script, um, doing the groundwork so that this doesn't come straight out of blue, out of the blue the way the alien uh, healing machine does later, but we'll talk about that. I think it is elegantly done. I think it is perfectly done, and in such a way that they are able to, in story terms, disable the Earth Force fleet in Mars orbit with a stroke. Mm-hmm. And you it is, buy it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, well, this is, you know, Sheridan's always got something up his sleeve. His mentor says this flat out. Sheridan's always, you know, no, we're not going to fall for the faint because, you know, this is this is a distraction. Uh, Sheridan's got something up his sleeve. It's just that the poor general has, has not got enough experience with... The mass. Well, how would he have known? Yeah. How would he have right. known that he had a car, that he had a telepath who could right. take over yeah, his computer? Because I, in the I assume hole. his most of his um, action, at least in the last many many years, has been on Earth. He does not have he Sheridan's breadth of experience. Yeah, mm-hmm. he does not have Sheridan's breadth of experience. He probably has no idea that there is such a thing as a shadow. Right. Right. Yeah, that's true. Probably. Yeah. yeah, and I, like you I said, felt... and Sheridan, you know, basically pulls it, pulls their shorts up over their head and ties it in a knot. <laughs> That's <laughs> I I agree, Chip. That that story wise, this it was very elegant. This was this was a wonderful way to do it. The one flaw that that to me was so glaring had nothing to do with the story and everything to do with the casting of the side actors. Um, mm. It's this. I feel like this whole this whole idea of using 
people as weapons has been, you know, a part of the seeding of this was so interesting because we we got to see Dr. Franklin's sort of like gobsmackedness when he first hears about it. And then, mm. you know, we find out about it here. And I think that it's it's a great moment for him as a character. It's a great moment for Sheridan as a character because, you know, Sheridan is willing to do what needs to be done and Dr. Franklin comes around to it, yada, yada, yada. But the person that we have who is our on-screen sort of voice of sanity <laughs> or voice of voice of these That's people true. was just That's fair. terrible. <laughs> she I thought just... she was good up until that point. I thought that she did good in the right. uh, surprise, uh, I'm holding yes. a gun on you moments, but mm-hmm. yep. that, that line delivery. Yeah, she so she That's was great true. as a an undercover agent. Um, and then, yeah, just the, uh, I don't know, and, and maybe that was uh, in, in some ways a failure of direction with being such a, a, a new director. I would not be surprised if, if, Copeland, because he's a producer, had a real good hand on keeping everything organized from the point of view of the, um, you know, the post-production and, and and actually pre-production and all that kind of stuff, the organizational, but actually working one-on-one with actors to get the best um, performance out of them. I mean, who knows? Maybe he has a whole bunch of stage experience that I'm not familiar with. But in this one case, it just... It was a character who was not one of our long-standing characters and just yeah so i feel like maybe maybe that is a, something i would want to lay at the foot of the director instead since as you said she was great up until that point when it when it got time to really emote it was a little ott yeah, yeah. that's fair yeah but aside from that this seems like a good opportunity for a mini steven check-in on whether he bought it uh, yeah, he he didn't say anything specific about any of any any of the pieces sort of of this puzzle coming together. He was just really letting the entire episode wash over him. So um, I guess I can wait until the very end for the Stephen check in officially to, okay. to give give you everything. But yeah, he did not express any sort of um, surprise at this. It, it seemed to make perfect sense, which I agree. I love a lot of the stuff that happens on Mars. The CGI landscape stuff is dated, but aside from that, you know, you've got some nice camera angle swoopy stuff going on. It it feels like a genuine like military installation kind of thing. I love this. I love the scene where Garibaldi's team is making their way to that bunker and they're going over the ridge and the lighting is just perfect. And then... Then they switch to CGI humans, and it's a little less so. But still, it feels it feels real. It it, it felt uh, delightfully real to me. Um, I like how the Mars Resistance, with several people scurrying about in actual Earth Force uniforms, just to sort of uh, put a pin on the fact that uh, you know there are people on the inside. Um, mm-hmm are working together to get the telepaths in position. Um, it feels like a huge logistical operation that's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that helps sell the credibility of this as well. Yeah. And wasn't it weird, at least for me, it felt weird to see them talking to an Earth Force officer wearing that old fashioned Earth Force uniform that our heroes don't wear anymore. It just mm-hmm. and and they've been only on screen as sort of the enemy for a long time, except for the, you know, rare occasions where you have, you know, that 
the the defected soldiers with mm-hmm. with our our heroes but it, yeah. it just i don't well, know it, and like it threw me for a loop for a second yeah well like it chip, chip said though it makes sense to show that you know there are people you know who have been you know all along mm-hmm. working against the clark government or you know now yep. that things are coming together are seeing the opportunity to help and jumping in to, uh, against the clark government that works for me uh the other thing that works for me um with the mars side uh is, you know, the fact that JMS is able to get some character stuff in there. Um, when Garibaldi starts reeling off the dwarves as code names, I'm just like, he's <laughs> back. He's finally back. You know, little things like that just put mm-hmm. a grin on my face. Oh, me too. Me too. But maybe the lot, lot, latitude and longitude joke was a little much. I will, uh, I one will, beat extra, maybe. maybe. I, I liked its presence, but yeah, maybe, maybe didn't have to go that that extra line. Yeah, if it had, if it had just been like a little bit of friendly, friendly ribbing with you know Doctor Franklin being, oh, you sure, you know, you get those mixed up, and and if Garibaldi would have been like har har blah blah and ended it there, I think yeah, that would have been fine. Yeah, but then we wouldn't get the chance for Stephen to glare at him. I don't know. I don't mm. know. It did not bother me. Hmm. So. Mars is taken care of just like that, and then we're in Earth orbit, and we have Bruce Boxleitner delivering his best big damn hero speech, and I'm there for it. Mm-hmm. Totally. And then Earth falls just like that, except, <laughs> and I wonder if that was a beat too much. Turning the... Uh... The grid in on itself. Yeah, I mean, we I, have no shortage. We have no shortage of examples in history of the dictator once cornered, offing himself, um, mm-hmm. and we've had it established throughout the throughout the year that Clark has been getting increasingly paranoid, uh, especially once his buddies in the Shadow War just up and disappeared, and all of a sudden he's left all by himself. So I get that. I'm searching for a bit of motivation for why he would turn the defense grid on Earth. I, 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 think, I, I think I know the reason why it has to happen in story terms, but in, in world, I'm looking for a reason. In world, I don't think we have, I just don't think we have enough information to support any one thing. We have not seen enough of Clark to get the idea that he might be another Cartagia thinking he is saving his people by, you know, sending them to heaven and then achieving his own mini godhood. That's a parallel that could be drawn, but we don't have enough information to make it solid. That is one um, thought that uh, hmm. the folks at the Lurker's Guide say, because yeah. his, his, hmm. his suicide note says the ascension of the common man all over the thing. Yeah. And that does sort of parallel Cartagia's uh, outlook. And, we also have the possibility of this involving the telepaths, you know, is is Clark wiping out as many telepaths as possible because so many of them are on Earth and uh, trying to do the same thing that Eggers was trying to do with uh, medicine and disease. But again, we don't have enough information to support that. As far as we know, a great number of telepaths supported Clark, so that doesn't necessarily make sense either. Yeah, that was one thing that Stephen has, I think he's pointed out a couple of times before, I'm not sure if I've mentioned it, but he said it again here is that he finds it interesting that President Clark is so rarely seen 
and you know he almost never speaks he said he's like here they basically treated Clark like an unspeaking extra so mm-hmm. so you're right Shannon they're just we don't have enough information so I, I do feel yeah. like that's a little bit of a shortcoming I mean the fact that that he's scribbling down you know the ascension of the common man on paper and circling this the scorched earth thing makes makes me just think maybe he's he's just crazy he right. has lost and all his faculties that's and... the most viable option we have right mm-hmm. yeah but um, i think that the i think that the reason the biggest reason that this happens goes back to something we've been talking about is jms's need for our heroes to be our heroes mm-hmm. he will yeah. he, he will go gray but in the end, this is a military coup against a president who admittedly what himself took uh, power through through assassination. But it is a military coup. Mm-hmm. Um, JMS bends over backwards to show our heroes as the good guys. Yeah. And in the end, the defense grid is turned on Earth so that Sheridan can rescue the Earth. He right. comes in as an attacker and he ends the episode as a rescuer. Yeah, that I totally agree that this is yeah, JMS's way of totally solidifying on rock foundation that yeah, that the uh Babylon 5 team has were the good guys has always been the good guys have maybe done a few things that are not so good but in the name of the the better uh in the name of uh, heroism yeah mm-hmm. and i think too that it is it's kind of important even though we don't have a good reason for it that not only are they saving the earth i mean it, it, the reason for the the defense grid turning in on earth could have been something something different something external to clark could have been i don't know like the shadow technology or some nonsense like that that it wasn't clark's choice and it wasn't his fault in this case the fact that it was actually clark who actively did it means that we have you know written bold across the sky that not only did sheridan save the earth but he was right all along and Mm -hmm. clark was the bad guy all along because he was willing to do this to the earth and just to put a pin on it general Lefcourt rides to the rescue right at the end Right. Mm-hmm. And the guy that the guy who just earlier in this episode said that they are targets to be eliminated no more than and no less is all buddy buddy and admiring of Sheridan again. You have to go mm-hmm. to a court of inquiry, but welcome mm-hmm. home. We've been monitoring yeah. the situation. Yeah. Um, yeah, that it that that seemed a little a little neat, a little tidy and and you know, like we mentioned the the reasoning for Clark's action had it been a little bit more nicely played out all along, I think it would have been a little more satisfying. But still, it just the way that everything hung together and how exciting and edge of the seat <laughs> I felt throughout this whole thing made it fine for me at the end. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. I would agree with that. Um, there's more to come in this in this storyline, of course, because the episode ends with Sheridan getting ready to go down to Earth and sort of deal with cleaning up the mess mm-hmm. and um you know which brings me to the point of the episode where i caught myself crying and that was because i knew what was coming because i'd seen it and been impressed by that before and i was sort of preliminarily sentimental <laughs> and that was the return of our isn anchor from mm-hmm. severed dreams last scene 
uh, when uh, Clark's troops were storming the station and were getting ready to uh, take everybody into everybody away into custody. I was also weepy at that point. Um, I had to point out afterwards to Stephen, like, did you realize that that's the first, the, the same woman who was our our news anchor, you know, way back in the beginning, you know, this, this trusted person who then disappeared for so long. And Stephen was like, oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> but uh, to me, that's one of the most emotional moments in, in everything that we have seen in Babylon 5 so far. Because I just, you know, the, the way I described it to Stephen was like, you know, imagine Walter Cronkite disappears for a while for for no reason, and suddenly he's back and he's crying on 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 screen. Like that's that's sort of the feeling that I got, and I was just, oh, so misty. Uh, yeah, it's a it's a superb use of screen time so that JMS can give the initial summaries and reactions a little bit more of what's been going on on Earth, uh, how how the media has been affected by it, um, as well as bringing the actress back because she just does a, such a good job. Maggie such a Egan. good job. Maggie Egan, yes. well done you. Mm-hmm. And it was, I thought it was a very nice touch that one of the things that was really driven home and sort of repeated a few times at the end of her her news read there was how important it is to sort of let go of this side versus that side and come mm-hmm. together. And and I think that that is the kind of thing that, you know, sort of a, a wise news station would would do rather than trying to, you know, get ratings and drive more wedges in between two sides of people, just, you know, bringing everybody together for the good of all. Um, it might be a little bit uh, pie in the sky for for the way an actual news organization would work. But, you know, maybe for, for some people who have been kept prisoner for a, a couple of years now, maybe maybe that is the way that they would think coming out of it. So I, I quite like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Speaking of things that we haven't seen in a while and then come back when you least expect them, there's this alien healing machine. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I think the last thing we need to talk about is Susan Ivanova, who has as easy a job in this episode as Jerry Doyle had at the beginning of season two, <laughs> and Marcus Cole. Oh, Marcus! <sighs> what do you call a Chekhov's gun that you've totally forgotten about? I'm <laughs> I'm trying to figure out because I think JMS does a good job of bringing it back in. Um, this is like the one plot thread that it really impresses me that this is such a strong component of the story when there is so much already going on. Um, you know, you get Lanier just, you know, mentioning, you know, it's not even a slip of the tongue. I mean, you know, Lanier just sort of says, you know, answers Marcus's question in a way and Marcus hears something and zeroes in on there is something that could be done. Uh, and then goes and investigates it. Um, I love how we see the bits of footage of uh, the other files that come along. We see the reference in Walkabout to the uh, nightclub singer that uh, Franklin was involved with. Uh, we get a mention of Marcus's injuries that is probably post-Naroon, um, although I think there's a question in the Lurker's Guide about uh, Franklin not even being in the in med lab, that being on his own his own walkabout during that time. I don't know. Mm. Um, but then we get the reference to them helping Garibaldi with the machine that first showed up in season one and it just works. Yep, it does. And like I said, it was, 
it that episode must have stood out enough that that Stephen, my Stephen, remembered it um, mm-hmm. even before we got any of the uh, any of the flashbacks or anything. He was just like, "Oh, is that the machine that the you know the lady used in Down Below?" And I was like, "Yes, that's exactly it." He was very proud of himself, and I was proud of him too. Mm. And it is deserved. Yeah, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. The first time I watched this, I'm not sure I remembered until it See, was spelled I, out. I think I, don't I did. I think I think for me it was one of those moments like, oh yeah, um, sort of almost like a, a warm blanket of epiphany. Like, yes, that's right. That makes perfect <laughs> sense. Whereas had he, had it come up a few times here and there, I, I feel like that would have been laying it on too thickly. Right. Whereas in this case, I feel like it was perfect not having it mentioned because it's just, you know, you know that there are so many little pieces of things that are on the shelf in the history of Babylon 5. And now I sort of have this tantalizing feeling like, what else is back there? What else is in the storage closet that JMS could just pull out and make great use of? I think that that, that sort of makes it more exciting going forward for me whether or not that pans out um on screen just the 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 knowledge that nothing is forgotten at least you know Mm -hmm. for the most part i i I really liked it so i'm glad that it wasn't uh wasn't seated any more than it was so you had the uh you had the warm blanket of epiphany followed by the cold wet sack of emotion (sighs) yeah it was more like a cold wet fist of emotion let's be honest so let's let's talk a little bit about that um is it in character for marcus to do this oh god yes yes (laughs) no question yes it is totally Mm -hmm. in character for marcus to do something like this so he's always considered himself you know nothing more than like a a cog in the wheel of you know the structure of the rangers or the structure of the alliance he is you know a, a foot soldier helping along Um, And now he has the chance to do something um, devastating to himself, but it's going to save this woman that he loves. Um, And yeah. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And we've talked before, too, about how he's... I don't think that he has been characterized to have sort of the same death wish that they sort of had uh, Sinclair dealing with in the first season. But he has always very much been a, you know, I will just step forward and do whatever it is I need to do. You know, even talking about his battle with Naroon, he was absolutely ready to die for the cause right there. Right. Uh, so right. I think that this is he has just found another cause and one that he thinks is is every bit as worthy. And that is Susan Ivanova. So, I mean, he is he's very much styled on screen as the the dashing like swashbuckling romantic hero and that's exactly what his characterization is as well he is he's the the big-hearted romantic and this is his this is his chance to shine or fade out i guess technically (laughs) and he finally tells her i love you and that was a really good delivery it really was and then the camera mercifully fades to black before he actually dies Assuming right. that he dies, mm-hmm. it's pretty likely he's going to die, y'all. Um, but he just sort of he he just sort of sort of settles in. There's sort of this uh, mm-hmm. "I love you" and this sort of resignation to this is what I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. Gut punch. I, I I still remember my jaw just like dropping the first time that I saw this. I was. I was not prepared. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, I didn't think... know what I what I thought was going to happen with with Ivanova. And it, it it certainly wasn't this. 
just it was all too much. Yeah. It's still too much, you guys. There is a continuity problem with this because in the quality of mercy, the machine is described as not healing physical damage. And we talked a little bit about this in spoiler space uh, last week. Um, yeah, because they turned right around and healed Garibaldi with it. Right, but he was, was the, but he was recovering. He was actually sort of reco- He was in a coma. His the 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 uh, the physical damage had sort of been repaired, but he was still comatose. Hmm. So you can you can do that. But Susan is still dealing with uh, remarkable physical trauma, and Marcus is using this this machine to try to cure that. And that's perhaps, I, I think that I think that's <laughs> I think that's moving the goalposts a little bit. A little bit, but per- you know, perhaps when she says. It can't heal physical damage. That means, you know, in, in quality of mercy, because she's she's trying to heal people and stay alive. Whereas I can't remember the exact line in this episode, something about in order for it to, you know, totally fix the other, you know, for, for it to save Someone's the life of die. one person, yeah. the other person has to die. So so perhaps it's just like almost two different settings on the machine. Like there's there's healing someone. But if you want to repair physical damage, that's going to cost you a life or something. I realize that this is stretchy headcanon, but it's it's what I'm mm. going with. Yeah, I do like that. Uh, I, I do like the, the sort of the coda in um, Franklin's log entry talking about we have to remember it was used for capital punishment. You right. Know, yep. Just to mm-hmm. just to just to emphasize how dark this machine actually is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Good reminder. Mm-hmm. Yeah. More about that next episode as we find out what happens. Uh, what happens in the uh, in in mid lab afterward. So that is pretty much everything that happened in the episode. Uh, final thoughts and Stephen check in. This is something that jumped out at me um, watching it this time around that I don't think I noticed before. And I'm going to lay the reason I realized this at the feet of another show I follow, Voltron, where um, there has been descriptions of the storyboarding of a lot of scenes in Voltron. What's in the background is almost as important as what's in the foreground. And this time, it leapt out at me several instances of um, the battle, of the um, space battles, where you have a close-up of a Star Fury pilot, and what you can see through the window next to him is a Minbari fighter or another alien ship supporting um, and helping, especially in the last frantic scramble to take down the defense platform. Um you see several of those shots, and that just jumped out at me this time as a circle closing, kind of, because the entire story of Babylon 5 gets introduced with this notion that the Mimbari were on the verge of um, taking over Earth uh, before suddenly surrendering when they realize that, you know, some Earth people have Mimbari souls, and oh, we can't do that. Um, and here we have Earth and Mimbari side by side rushing to rescue Earth. And it just, on the grand scheme of things, it ties in so well with just these little visual cues. Yeah, that's that's a nice bit of symmetry. Mm-hmm. Well, as for the uh, the Stephen check in, when it ended, he just immediately said that was epic. That was damn epic. Wow, that was impressive. So this this episode really really hit his buttons. He said it was awesome. It was a good in. It was he had many many positive words. Um, it was pretty intense, and he said he really didn't know what was going to happen. So it just it was exciting for him. It took him by surprise, 
And he did think that it felt like the intended storyline and that it was well thought out. So everything that happened for him fit into place and felt like it was it was the way it was supposed to go. So I think as we had talked about earlier, the, the feeling like some of the series was condensed and and some of it uh, was not this. He definitely felt like this was a part that was not so much um, condensed. He also wanted wanted me to point out uh, this was sort of toward the beginning of the episode when Sheridan is uh, on the Agamemnon that he he thought that this uh, this and Deep Space Nine sort of mirror each other a little bit in that both Sheridan and Cisco um, sort of become the most epically badass and cool when they get their own ship to command and have a beard. So that's uh, he 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 was like write that down write that down. So I just needed to make sure I said that I've done my part now. Okay then. <laughs> well, we're about to jump into a spoiler space to talk about uh, what happens as a result of this episode. Next episode, we'll be talking about rising stars, and we will be joined by Mr. Jason Snell. Uh, who has been with us several times before, uh, mainly having to do with episodes that involve doom and death and depression. This time, it's a little different because he was actually on the set when this episode was shot. Mm-hmm. And he's going to have some stuff to share about uh, what what he saw, what he saw uh, when they were making Rising Stars. So we're really looking forward to that. Exciting. Hey. Hey, um, you can tell us what you think about this episode of Babylon 5 at our website, b5audioguide.com, in the spoiler and spoiler-free threads. You can also ping us on Tumblr or Twitter at b5audioguide. Um, Erica, Shannon, let's go into hyperspace, shall we? We shall. And we have landed in spoiler space. Um, it is interesting, Erica, that you close that with uh, Stephen saying that you know they Sheridan, like Cisco, sort of reaches his peak when he's on his ship and he's got a beard. <laughs> um, the problem with a peak is that you go downhill. Yep. Uh, and yeah. Sh- Sheridan's going to keep the beard, but he's not going to be spending a whole lot of time on ships in the coming season. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I suspect that Stephen is going to to feel that uh, that is decidedly less epic, and <laughs> that the beard mm-hmm. is probably not going to be quite enough to uh, to keep his uh, attention in the same fashion. <laughs> the thing is, this is the end of, and it could not it could not be a bigger ending. Uh, this is the an in, the end to the story of Sheridan as war hero, mm-hmm. um, and. As of, and I'll be really interested to see what Stephen thinks of next week's episode of the next episode because Sheridan immediately becomes a politician. He becomes the politician, mm-hmm. and he's not going to be great at it all the time. This is sort of peak Babylon Five, really. This mm-hmm. is it's not just it's mm-hmm. not just the peak of Sheridan's story. It's sort of the peak of the Babylon Five story. After this. Babylon 5 becomes the story of cleaning up after the mess. I think that is a brave choice of JMS's. I think it is an intelligent, um, thoughtful, you know, it's not just rah, rah, good guys versus bad guys. Here's the big war scene. It's winning is easy, governing's harder. And yet Mm -hmm. we're going to be watching that for another 
22 episodes. And I think it's going to be a hard, uh, I think it's clearly going to be a harder slog for Steven. There are some old friends of mine who were big Babylon 5 fans who, because it was no longer like Endgame, just threw it aside and said, this sucks. Mm-hmm. It's going to be very different. Well, it, it's, it is very hard to make what comes next interesting. Uh, I mean, you know, the, the factor of the telepath war, I think, is an interesting attempt. And it could have been a lot better if JMS had known and been able to take the time in season four to start seeding all of that more than he did. Um, but yeah, ultimately, um, ultimately, a lot of season five, from what I remember, does drag. Yeah, it's it's hard to make the aftermath sexy, you know. That's mm-hmm. just that's just the way it is. But I yeah. think one of the things that I've always loved about Babylon Five in general is that there are shades of gray, and it doesn't always shy away from the uncomfortable side of things. And while you know they do a nice job of making our heroes pretty darn heroic, there are also other characters who sort of exist on both sides of, of the coin. And and I think that this season five is sort of like writ large, that same sort of idea. Like we're not going to sh- shy away from from the difficult parts, the aftermath. And yeah, it is a lot harder to make it as exciting of a sort of narrative arc. And I appreciate that. And I can understand why people would want to turn away from that. But to me, I wasn't only watching Babylon 5 for the the rising arc and the space battles and you know the giant conflicts and stuff I was also watching for the world this amazing world that has been built behind all of that and these characters that I've really really come to love over the course of these four years and those characters are still there not only is this world still there I would say that season season five does as much additional world building as the rest of it because you really get to know more about the way people and governments and stuff interact when you're dealing with sort of the more boots on the ground politics trying to keep stuff together than um, than what is shown earlier which is just sort of you know people panicking and and trying to keep things together in the moment of crisis this is people less panicky still trying to keep things together after the moment of crisis so i think it's it's a totally valid and worthy season but if you are watching for big battles and great big speeches yeah i guess it's not going to be for you we will get some of that with the fall of centauri prime and things like right. that mm-hmm. you know there will yeah. be there will be pew 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 um <laughs> yeah. but but I think another, a big part of this is going to be also, you know, I, I talked a lot before the jump gate about, you know, Sheridan coming in as the big damn hero. He is going to make lots and lots of mistakes as a politician, as a, as, as a president. Um, and that'll be interesting. But mm-hmm. at times it's going to be less compelling than others. Yep. That's another little bit of, you know, Babylon 5 realism. Somebody who makes a great soldier isn't always going to make a great politician. Those are two different skill sets. And when you get somebody who has, you know, this this well-known personality, you know, almost a, a cult of personality to, to some extent, you know, <laughs> Garib, previous Garibaldi would have very much agreed. Uh, it doesn't translate to somebody who is is suave in in the ways of politics on on a large scale as opposed to sort of a small station scale. Speaking of messes that have to be cleaned up, Marcus would not have died if JMS had known that Claudia Christian would not be coming back. It just makes me want to cry more. 
Mm-hmm. He's, he said on the Lurker's Guide, or he's quoted on the Lurker's Guide as saying, regarding Marcus, in this case, it ties very much into this character's background and would, in another universe in which Claudia Christian decided to stay, have spun out into some rather interesting developments, which would have been Ivanova seeing some similarities between Marcus and Byron, the leader of the telepaths, and would have done some different things there. It also would have meant spending less time establishing uh, Tracy Scoggins's Captain Lockley as a character. This is a powerful moment, and I think it is a good ending for Marcus, and yet it feels like the power is wasted somewhat because Claudia Christian leaves. Mm-hmm. Yep. Alas. And uh, the last uh, spoiler note that I have is that, you know, this is, I think, the last time Lita really plays ball with this notion of using telepaths and being sort of complicit or compromising in this mm-hmm. sort of thing, especially after she meets Byron. She's not down with that anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like, you know, there there was no time or reason to show us anything about that at this point but i i and i don't exactly remember the the episodes coming right after this but i i do think that just as a character the way that that lita has been built after having done this and after having taken this action like that had to have sort of left a mark on her on her psyche in some way so yeah this this i feel like is a very logical sort of first domino maybe toward her really just getting ticked off with the system (laughs) the way it is the whole system everybody (laughs) not just the man yeah yeah yeah. that the mundanes and the psychor the radicalization of lita alexander it's a comment (laughs) (laughs) so that was in game and next time rising star as we get a new president and uh, several other developments to happen uh and then the deconstruction of falling stars then that'll be it for series four and the primetime entertainment Mm -hmm. network era of babylon five (laughs) Mm -hmm. we'll have to change that we'll have to change the opening fanfare (laughs) you're right So that was Endgame, and that is the end of episode 85 of the Audio Guide to Babylon 5. This is Chip and Durham. Erica in Edmonton. And Shannon in Durham. And you've been watching The End of the Earth Civil War. More later. (laughs) Bye-bye.